I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement, black leadership rose, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black home, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised? Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say for the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns, that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fights, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me Primad. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements, black leadership rose, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin sale pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment says you cannot be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. All right. We will still let people join, but let's get us started.
Hello, I am so thrilled to welcome you all here tonight for our fantastic panel, Black Reparations, Apology, Repair, and Reconciliation. My name is Julia Shoshnik. I am the Community Organizing Manager at the American Repertory Theater, and I am joined by my fantastic program and event partner, Ola. Yes, I'm Ola Wumi, actually I am the Deputy Director of Programs at Arts Boston, and also managing NAC, which is the Network Arts Administrator for Color. Wonderful. We are so excited to have you here tonight for this event. Tonight's event is the second to last in Declaration Reclamation. Um, it's our series of workshops and gatherings inspired by and running alongside the American Repertory Theater's production of 1776. Um, we have one more event in the series happening this Saturday at Spectacle Island. If you are here, you will get an email about that. Um, and with this series of programming, we were really interested in exploring the question, how is my story a part of American history? So we've explored that, that through a series of different workshops. Um, we all watched the show together. We had different gatherings, exploring different disciplines across the city. We knew we wanted to have a conversation around reparations to really help link the moment uh, that the musical is concerned with and the moment we find ourselves in now in 2022. Um, before we set the scene for the event and pass it over to our fantastic panelists, I do uh, want to read the ART's anti-racism commitment that we read before every single event. I'll read that for you now. The ART is unequivocally opposed to hate and centers anti-racism as a core value. We expect everyone in the ART community, including our audiences, to uphold these values, and as such, we will not tolerate anti-blackness or racism of any kind in our buildings, nor at our off-site or virtual events. We aim to create an environment that is uninhabitable to racism and discrimination, and where all BIPOC staff, artists, volunteers, audience, and community are seen, heard, valued, and provided the opportunity to thrive. This work is only possible when we do it together. Thank you for being our partner in it. Thank you so much. So we are so excited for tonight's conversation. We're joined by several incredible leaders in reparations initiatives that really um, represent and celebrate um, so many different organizing styles and different backgrounds, and we're going to learn so much from them. Um, tonight's conversation is moderated by ART's very own Steph Davis, who is our anti-racism engagement organizer. Um, we're actually streaming live from the Fairmount Innovation Lab here in Dorchester. So we're just in the other room. Our panelists um, are just across the hall, and we're going to pass it over to them. Before we do, I want to um, welcome El Plaga to turn on your camera. We have a very exciting um, – yes, hello. Hello. Um, we have a live artist, El Plaga, streaming in from Washington, D.C. I'm going to read out your bio for everyone. That works. El Plaga, as he is artistically known, is a native Washingtonian who is most recognized as a professional tattoo artist with over 15 years of experience. In the last two years, his passion for paint on canvas has grown, and so has his following. El's painting style is reminiscent of Jacob Lawrence and Ezra Jack Keats, with a focus on modern interpretations of everyday life. We're so excited to have El Plaga here. Um, this is a really exciting thing that the lead organizer of tonight's event, Aziza Robinson Goodnight, organized. Um, El Plaga is going to be creating a work of art that's really inspired by the conversation here tonight. We'll check back in um, at the end to see the creation that comes out of that. Um, but that 
the screen that you have up here right now is going to stay up so you can see as that work of art is being created. I'm so excited for that. So grateful to El Plaga, Billy Wilkerson, who's also on camera, and Aziza for organizing that. Thank you. Did I miss anything, Ola? No, that you basically gave a great opening and exciting to the panelists that we have there. You know, if you would like to pass it on to Steph, to introduce all of our lovely people that are going to be talking today. And thank you all for joining us this evening. Yes, and before we go, um, please note that the Q&A feature of the Zoom is open. We will hold time at the end for questions. Um, so feel free to just pop your questions into that Q&A feature throughout the event. Um, and I'll make sure those are gathered and answered for you all. I am so excited. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. Let's pass it over to Seth and our panelists so you can get to know them. Thank you all. Hello, my name is Steph Davis. I am so grateful to be in the room with these brilliant panelists tonight to have this dialogue about Black reparations. Um, this is just a small piece of a long history of struggle, so hopefully this is just one small conversation that's adding on to this ongoing history. Um, I'd like to jump right into it to get to you all to introduce yourselves, explain a bit about your journey to the reparations movement, and what Black reparations means to you. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Seth, and um, thank you for hosting this important conversation. Um, my name is Tammy Kai. I am a mother, partner. I live in Dorchester. I'm the um, previous deputy director of King Boston. And first, I just want to say that I'm a baby to the reparations movement, right? I just want to acknowledge the, the movement for reparations is centuries long, right? Centuries long since the first moment of resistance. That's where the reparations movement was born. Um, and for me personally, my journey to the black reparations movement has come out of a whole lifelong um, commitment to dismantling inequities, right? And I was doing that in lots of different ways. I'm a trained youth worker, teacher. I was running lots of youth programs. And at some point I realized I was, a, I was going after sort of the results of things and that we need to get to a systemic transformation. And reparations is, for me, the only way to get to that, and particularly black reparations when we think about the founding narratives and the, you know, dual sins, original sins of our country, theft of land and then the theft of bodies and labor. Black reparations is the place we can go to to begin to heal, right? So we're trying to heal in all these other different ways, but we're not going right to an original source. Um, and so that's, that's, been, that's been my journey here, and I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation. Um, um, hello, my name is Zinja Robinson Goodnight, um, and I, like Tammy, am totally a baby um, in the reparations movement, and I'd like to give old and, like, grace and, like, thanks to my elders um, who actually paved this path um, and, were, and, and gave us this, like, knowledge, like, gave us this knowledge. Um, my work um, around the reparations work is totally on the ground. I started um, organizing through the New Democracy Coalition um, and and just, I'm a rebel rouser. I am a truth seeker. I am a, um, a revolutionary and that's, that's my role in this work is to really, you know, serve the ground. Um, and help to build consciousness and bring together the folks that, you know, might not have the access to this information, um, that information straight to them where they're at. Um, and I'm really excited to be in this conversation as we continue to do this work. Um, well, I guess I'm excited. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, Mia Johnson, they use she, they pronouns. Um, 
So, you know, it's a journey. So I, um, I'm not black, I want to be real clear. <laughs> I'm a solar Apache. Um, I'm here in this conversation because of the link, the deep link between indigenous folks and enslaved black folks and their experience and the duality of our experiences as a founding of this country, the ways that our stories have been erased, the ways that um, the narrative of anti-blackness has been used um, both against indigenous people and against black people um, who are descendants of enslaved people, right? And so for me, it was really having done over 20 years of work in communities and particularly um, being welcomed in Boston um, and into Boston's black community and grounding a lot of the work that I do in community in this community. And through that knowledge and experience and, and sharing of life experience, um, similarly, just wanting to acknowledge not only those who have walked on in the last few years of sharing their knowledge and mentorship and leadership with me, but also those who walked before us, right, um, who led us to this moment of being able to say um, in a public space that not only is it important that we have reparations, and black reparations in particular, for black folks who are descendants of enslaved people, and I want to be really clear because it's not just any old black folks. It's really the descendancies and the legacy of that descendancy. And that, that actually leads into and supports the land back movement for indigenous people and the understanding that the erasures are tied, that our wind together is tied in, in transforming what our future is and transforming what our liberation is. So just with a lot of gratitude and honor and humility, um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. My name is Askia um, James, I'm sorry, um, and I think that my path here has been one that started before I was born, definitely um, throughout my childhood. Um, I've come to realize as an adult there's been a lot of books that I read as a child that's not normal. Um, and so there's a great amount of privilege that I have. Um, because of the access to education that was um, literally like groomed into me into my childhood. Um, and then as an adult, um, I just variously found my way um, always seeking to assist my community with my work. And uh, my current work actually has me like in the cannabis industry and how it's impacting our black community. And the focus is such on the plant that it forced me to step back because of the inequities <clears throat> that's being produced in the industry. And so we had to step back um, at my organization, um, the racial justice and health equity lobbyist at Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council. So we had to step back um, on the conversation of cannabis to talk about whose land is this, and then we had to talk about um, the inequities and the racial injustices and the harms. Um, and so we could not talk about cannabis without talking about reparations. Um, we could not talk about uh, cannabis without talking about land back. Um, and so this was the beginning of us seeking, you know, solidarity for racial justice. This is the beginning of us pushing, um, and that was through reparations and restitution through the war on drugs. Um, so this is how I arrived, you know, here today. Thank you. My name is Dr. April Khadija Innes, and I am the Director of Community Engaged Research at King Boxing, 
Um, I, I came to this work because I'm a lifelong resident of Boston. My family roots go really deep here in this area um, as, as far back as um, 1891. So this, this, this place really means a lot to me. And I remember in high school, when I was a senior, my aunt had gifted me a copy of uh, Dr. Randall Robinson's book, What America Owes Blacks. And I remember reading it and thinking, you know, this sounds good, but I don't think I'll ever see anything like this in my lifetime. But here we are today where, you know, you'll hear more about the work that's happening here politically in the city of Boston, but it's just such an exciting time to be part of this work. And I can't be more grateful to be sharing this space with all of the wonderful folks here who have been doing this, this work and heavily steeped in it. And I echo the homage that's been paid to our elders and our ancestors that, you know, brought us, brought us to the space that we're in today. So thank you. Thank you. April, I'd like to continue with you. You've done a lot of work researching racial and ethnic health disparities. Can you speak to some of your research and how that research connects to the Black Liberation Institute in Boston. Uh, before you start, can I just introduce the Sorry. Um, so there is another screen. There's an artist, um, a wonderful visual artist that is going to be painting live um, in in reaction to the feelings that they get from this panel. Um, that artist is Adam. His name is El Paga. He is artistically known as a native Washington who is most recognized as a professional tattoo artist. With over 15 years of experience, in the last two years, his passion for paint on canvas has grown and so has his following. El, El Paga's painting style is reminiscent of Jacob Lawrence and Ezra Jack Keats, with a focus on modern interpretations of everyday life. The items include in the item store. Yet everyday life. Um, and this artist was brought to us um, through a colleague in the work, um, Billy Wolf, Bill, Dr. Billy Wilkerson, um, who is the um, director of, sorry, who works at Harvard Law. Um, and I do not want to get her title wrong, but she has, she has introduced us to him, and she also is a valued um, reparation. Does, valuable reparations work. So we're just connecting our national network this is well. Let me just, let me just uh, add one this conversation that's the role of art in that struggle. Thank you. So back to you, um, Doctor. Um, can you speak to some of your research and its connection to the reparations movement? Happy to. So some of the work that we've been doing at King Boston is on something called a harm report or an impact report. So one thing that I've learned in this, in this movement for reparations is that data is important, information is important. Um, it's, it's critical that you know, folks are kind of dealing with the same set of facts at the table. So um, what we're working to contribute in partnership with um, community and um, being led by previous work that's been done in the field, we've put together this report that covers um, seven what we call injury areas. And these injury areas are basically seven areas of society where we can demonstrate very clearly the, the, the harmful racialized policies of the past and how those have produced the inequities that we're observing in the present that some of us are living in the present time. Um, so 
Um, the seven injury areas, just to get a little more specific, are um, housing, health, education, culture and symbols, transportation, the criminal legal system, and um, I always blank on the seventh one, income and wealth. So those are the seven injury areas that are covered off here in the report. And I'll share a story, for example, under um, this, the seventh one that I mentioned, income and wealth. So many of you may know or may not know that Massachusetts was actually the very first colony to legalize slavery in 1641. So in 1641, it was laid down in the law that black people were, quote, property, that we were chattel to be bought and sold. So you can imagine that working our way back from that, how hard it is to go from, quote, property to property owners. But I just want to highlight a profile of courage in this area, a woman named Zipporah uh, uh, Atkins Potter. And she was born to enslaved parents here in the 1600s. But in the year 1670 became the very first black landowner here in the city of Boston. And my favorite part, this, this woman owned this property as a single woman and maintained control of said property as a married woman. And mind you, this is 30 years after Massachusetts put into law that, that black people were essentially slaves. So um, it's no surprise if we look 300 years later, and I tell that story as well because you know, it's pretty well known that home ownership, land ownership are important pathways to building wealth. And you've probably heard a lot about the black-white racial wealth gap here in the city of Boston. There was a report released in 2015 by the Boston Federal Reserve that showed that the net average income, excuse me, the, 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 the median average um, uh, net assets of a black family came up to about $8 compared to roughly $250,000 for white families. And home ownership is thought to, to, to be the major player in that difference or that gap. So those are the kinds of things where, in this harm report, we're again looking at some of the policies and practices of the past and connecting them to the present. Thank you. I also want to add, it also reaches. Uh, the wage gap actually was part, was, a, is, 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 was found by the Federal Reserve, which is really important when you talk about the jobs for community members, for black community members to have access to good jobs and a network of, and the good job means that you can work one job starting at 70000 with benefits and time off and not have to work multiple other jobs in order to meet your basic needs for your family, and that access to that and that gap um, contributed greatly to the overall wealth, right? The wages and like who's paying and how they're paying. You said No. Because you can't buy a house. You can't make Okay, so you mentioned the story about courage, and I want to bring this back to resistance and open it up. Um, I was reading Bell's books, which bless her heart, um, on my just thank, thank you, Bell, um, about how we can't wait for the white supremacist patriarchal capitalism to change before we decide to start living fulfilled, self-determined, um, liberating lives. So. Um, how does loving resistance, liberating resistance, 
show up in your life? What practices, actions to you feel liberating and loving? Um, and you actually speak to that. It's a big question, right? And I'll just name as black women too, um, how you how you how you the courage to be your full self, to find joy in all the pain, right? To find joy in this movement. There's a lot to say don't be hopeful, right? There's a lot in there to tell us don't be hopeful. Um and so for me part of that is telling like knowing your stories and knowing history, right? So what April just shared, like, that story is, like, phenomenal, right? And there are more of them, right? And for, you know, I love to shock people with just information, right, to do the Tantra story to the, quote, quote, master narrative. But the other part, the master narrative, right? But there are tons and tons of resistant stories that we've got to get steep in knowing what those are and sharing those stories. And talking about them like they're everyday facts. Like it's not an anomaly that black women could own property, right? So we have to talk and own those stories as forms of resistance. I have to agree. Um, that that has been my liberating piece for me is um, being able to, you know, shock people with my story. Um, when people see black folks, they see, I don't know what they see, a certain thing. Even us, even Z, um, when we look at each other, we assume a certain thing. But um, I had someone tell me I was born with two silver spoons in my mouth. And that's, that. like, when I actually have conversations, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, I thought everybody lived like this. Because that's, I grew up thinking everybody lived a certain way. Um, but my father was a person I understood, and that 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 fuels my work um, as an organizer, as an activist, and being able to use my story and my my space for other people, um, and not just for myself. It's it's been hard. It's a hard thing, but being able to do that and seeing the results of that. Has been amazing, and that's that's exactly why I'm in this work. Like, I'm not gonna fight for these, just like Sandy said, these small things that are just not making real effects in my community. I'm gonna fight for something that shifts everything for us. So that's the liberating piece for me um, is being able to fight for something that can make a the monster books effect, something like that, you know, that will shift our economy, um, and I can't wait. <laughs> Me either. We need the reparations fund. This is playing right here. I was going to say, um, I think for me, my resistance comes out of um, joy and anger, like a reclamation of my emotions, um, because living in Massachusetts is such a conservative state. Um, there's so much respectability politics encoded within classism um, that if you're not looking a certain way, if you don't act a certain way, um, there's direct economical violence, right? Like this is, right, right? And so you have to play a certain role and if you don't have a certain titles to go with that role, how easily, because of anti-blackness, you can be discarded, even within your own community. Uh, it's particularly harmful if you are neurodivergent um, or have disabilities, um, you know, from multiple points of oppression, you know, um, coming into play and can harm 
us even further. Um, so for me, there's just a, a, a more, I need to expression. I need more space for expression of, full, of my full self and being able to show up in my full self um, unapologetically. And so for me, it's just very, very much rooted in joy and an anchor. You're not going to silence my joy. You're not going to silence my rage. I will rage on and I will joyfully dance. Um, and you cannot take that either or away from me. And my power resides just as strongly, you know, with my ancestors, with, with those two, um, you know, emotions and, you know, movement to, to move me forward um, and being called into what's those next actions for us to, to go forward with Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so for me personally, my resistance comes from, um, you know, even just watching, for example, my great-great-grandmother when she first came here from uh, North Carolina with um, a number of young children in, in tow and lay down roots here despite, you know, a lot of obstacles. She became a business owner. She, you know, we didn't have access to college and things like that in terms of my family, but, um, you know, she overcame a lot of odds and did a lot of great things. So I look at how she struggled and how she overcame, and then her daughter and her daughter and all the way down to me, I, I feel like there's a mantle that I have to kind of continue to carry in their names. I'm so thankful for how they sacrificed and really laying down a foundation for us. So that's really what what, what drives me forward and what uh, lies at the heart of my, of my resistance personally. And also to help build um, a better future for the next generation. Um, you know, this, this, this next generation that's going to inherit the planet and that includes the policies and the practices that we're perpetuating and putting into practice today, we have a responsibility to create a better and more equitable world for them. So that's what drives me. Uh, thank you. I just <laughs> um, But I feel it and um, I wish that you all could feel it and I hope that you do uh, through this. Um, when I moved to Boston, I came here to go to school as a lot of people do. I went to do family therapy, uh, wanted to study and work with families and, you know, I'm a child of adoption. I had a lot of harm, a lot of trauma and wanted to give back and felt like felt really called to build a community. And while I was there and doing my internships, I would go and all my whole class except for me and like two other people, um, and none of them were dark skinned, it was the only dark skinned person and everyone else was light skinned with people of color and everyone else was white. And they would come back and report, oh, those people, this thing, oh my gosh, poor people. And I was like, poor people, I would go and I'd be like, what do you mean you have 12 weeks and math and it's mandated and we, we don't have, that's not enough time to like, and so then I started digging in and started hearing the stories over and over again about what was actually happening. And it resonated with me because it was like, these are my stories, but they're my stories, right? This is my, my heritage too, like there's, there's a way in which the system has taken so much and it continues to take and it continues to suffer at the breath of brown and black women and it sucks and sucks and sucks and I, for me it was like I, I got so angry and I had a three-year-old son and I had gone and I was like 
how can I help? I started door knocking with this other group, and I was just like, I don't know, like, there's got to be something, you know? I was an activist, I was a poet, I was doing that, but it wasn't enough. Um, and that's how I came to organizing it. I didn't really know there was like a job called organizing. I was just like, oh, what is this? Parents? Yeah, we gotta, we gotta do something. Because I knew that there was an economic crisis. Right? And I knew that the families that I was working with, it wasn't their fault. Like, this was literally like, there was a systemic problem. And there were multiple impacts that were happening. And some people could get through those hurdles because they had some kind of a network, whatever that was. They kind of help hold them, and and, and, and it was just it was always teetering. And so, for me, it was this deep recognition that this work, and this is why I go back to what I said before, our relationship as Black Indigenous people is so aligned that when we move as whole people, as people who recognize our value of being whole. We can, we're unstoppable. And I think this is this space, I feel it, we're all getting a little serious. We feel the energy in the space because it is the voice of truth. It is a resonation of all of those who have walked before us. Our ancestors are filling the space. You know, our people are in this room and we're not alone and this will happen. It is happening whether we in this room make it happen today or tomorrow, it's happening now. And for those of you doing this, uh, be clear that it's not going away. This alignment is not leaving. This is being birthed and it's happening now. And I feel like that is where not only is it the joy, but it's, it's love. You know, at its foundation, it's love. We have survived because of love. And we are moving forward in love. And I just, I feel it, and, I, and it just feels, it resonates so much. I just want to ask what you said, you know, it's not my story, but it is my story. Right? And there's so much, I know we have a question later about the sort of solidarity among movements, but recognizing the way that this system has splintered those of us on the margins, and in keeping us marginalized mm -hmm. does not allow for solidarity, mm -hmm. right? And look, country is in a state of a mess. But to me, that's like the system shaking and realizing, oh no, it like we're it, we're being found out, right? Because we can have pockets of if the solidarity movements come together, that's stronger than this system that's holding us captive, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, and so for you to be able to say, it's not my story, but it's my story, right? Like, that's how we create some solidarity. So, all right, Seth, give me back to you. <laughs> Well, you, you, you started touching on that, and I'd love to get some more voices in on this about the groundwork that's happening. So, specifically, Fasia, Sabiza, and Mia, you've been involved in that groundwork. Can you speak to it, perhaps both locally and nationally, and what's that landscape like right now? Um, yes, uh, I can speak to it. I, 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 just, I really want to thank Tammy for, like, putting me along to, like, Evanston, um, and meeting, you know, our elders and people that were doing the same work on the ground around the nation. Um, because without her doing that, I don't think I would have got what I really really needed. So thank you. Um, 
And so here on the ground, like, we're moving. Um, there is a group of wonderful individuals that is pushing our um, city councilor, Julie Mejia, um, towards a commission um, for reparations in Boston. So we're, we're looking at somewhere in the fall, um, there being another subcommittee meeting, um, and then hopefully it's getting on the floor, but it's going to be up to us on the ground to be at City Hall. There are any subcommittees or on Zoom, wherever they choose to do it, um, to actually um, writing letters to city councilors. There we had a wonderful win um, a month ago. Um, our city council unanimously voted um, in favor of an apology for the harms that were done. Um, we're the first major city. Um, in, this, in the nation to actually get that, um, even though we did have a city council that said, the city council for South Boston said, you know, that he doesn't understand why, but it, yes, it was the public, so I can say this, um, because I am a rebel rouser, he doesn't understand why, and it speaks truth to what South Boston has been for black people forever and still is. Um, so um, really happy still voted, yes, um, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but right now, it's you know, it's it's about building the consciousness. So that has happened. Um, it's about raising funds to spread the word. So like getting, you know, party flyers out that say what is actually going on, links to it. Getting banners all over the neighborhood, just like um, politicians do. Um, and there's so also. Um, we're working in solidarity on the ground with our indigenous folks, um, but also like across the bridge in Cambridge. So Sophia can speak to um, the work that we're going to do jointly and the work that MRCC has already done and her amazing work on the ground. Um, but just being in solidarity as movement builders um, and making sure that, you know, we, we might not always agree, but we do have one mission. Um, and this is our mission, and we can do it in different ways, but we do have work that we're doing together. So I'll let Sophia speak to that. Um, so I started in Cambridge, um, and in Cambridge last year, we have a racial justice and equity commission, um, and then we have two funds. We have a reparations fund, and then we have um, a transatlantic slave trade, and then we have a restitution fund for the war on drugs. Um, so we, our commission is, is a double commission. Um, this year, right now, we're in the midst of organizing um, residents. I'm um, going through an intake process to see who's actually interested to be on the commission. Um, and then we're looking at examining language because we're seeing what Boston has done. Um, and if there's any, as you know, residents, do we want to make any amendments? Is there any demands that we feel that we missed? Um, the first time to go back to our city councilors with. Um, the city of Cambridge, uh, of Boston, actually, um, in their latest policy, um, their, their commission's going to be paid. Um, in the city of Cambridge, um, no commission has ever been paid before. Um, so this is one of our top demands that already that we're looking at, is that you expect us, this is this is a double commission, a double commission, or a single and the one and you want us to be developing two harm reports with zero confidence. <laughs> you know, so like, 
wait a minute, we need to take a step back and have a very real frank conversation. Um, so we're organizing, and this is just like one of the areas that we're organizing. Um, so for me, I started, I'm a resident of Cambridge. I started in Cambridge. Um, I said, if the revolution's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen in my backyard, right? So I need to start here, and I just started meeting with my city councilors and doing outreach, having weekly meetings. What does reparations mean for you? Because publicly, there's not a lot of education going on. Um, and being a foot soldier, like going into the hood, dropping off flyers, you know, standing on the streets and engaging with people. Um, and so then, since then, we passed that. We, earlier this year, just kicked off like a statewide municipal campaign. It's very grassroots. There's no press release. It's a people power campaign. Um, we are looking to empower people on the ground, um, not necessarily like starting with institutions. Um, so it's very, very grassroots. We did not expect for like in the meetings when we first started out, I had people from like London coming into the meetings, um, wanting to learn and fear how, what does reparations mean and how do you go about it. Um, and so it's been a very edu educational process and just me being clear, like, it's very important for me to multiply myself. I am the only black queer woman in Massachusetts that is a racial justice and health equity lobbyist. Um, it is very important that we teach people um, policy and policy writing. We have amazing poets. We have amazing rappers. Uh, like one of the things I hope to do one day is to teach, like, to go from um, from poetry to policy um, and to do a workshop around that because we need to be um, our lyrical assassins. We need to be at the table when it comes to writing policy. Uh, we need to go from songwriting to writing legislation, and it is not difficult to do that. And so I'm actually interested in engaging um, people who that do not have a traditional educational background into policy writing, um, because I feel that they're being missed from the conversation frequently um, and being, um, you know, just further marginalized from the conversation when actually uh, people that don't have a traditional background were more than capable of providing answers and solutions and very beautiful with words. Um, so they should be at the table as well too, if anything, you know, brought more into the table. Um, and since then we have several towns. I'm talking with people across the state. Um, I, I grew up in Brockton. I have friends in South Shore. I have friends in Central Massachusetts. Um, a few people in Western, and so everybody, every town is in different place, and the only thing I can emphasize is that all healing is local. So in Cambridge, we did a double commission. Um, we have a huge immigrant um, community, and the war on drugs and the acceleration of gentrification is a huge demarcation for us. Um, so it felt important. Um, we can go fast alone, right, but we can go farther together. And so, you know, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, like, let's go, let's go far, let's take the cake, let's go all the way, you guys. And so when I have conversations with people locally, um, I just don't make the decision. I'm, I'm telling you that these are the policies that I've seen, and it is for you to have conversations um, with your neighbors and with your friends and to say which pathway um, feels right for us and to have public conversations. Um, it's not for me to dictate uh, which pathway is it for you. I am just simply here to tell you the tools and to help educate you on 
which is reparations mean, especially, particularly, reparations from the transatlantic slave trade? Um, and who, who does reparations go towards from that? And then the war on drugs, how has that impacted in your town? And who does that, um, how does that expand the conversation? Um, so it's, it's about being very intentional to name the harm, um, have historical reckoning, and then also, you know, public education and naming the people that is to be included within these. Um, and when all of, within all of these conversations, um, like in Cambridge, the first thing, it was just like I was doing uh, the historical reckoning, doing the research, and all of these institutions I go to, they're like, uh, we don't have the research done yet. And I'm like... I'm ready now, but I'm ready now, you know? And they're like, but we don't have it yet. And I'm just like, well, I'm not waiting. You know, so you have, I, I, I want to emphasize that you do not wait for colonial institutions to give you the tools that you need to create change. You can do it with or without them. It is about the power of the people. So move forward. Take you, take your friends, take the homeless, Take the people who are hungry. Take all. Take everything. We are people who waste nothing. We we do not turn down or waste anything. You use everything that you have to move forward and to create the change. And I also just want to emphasize that with the, with our work, we're not seeking perfection, right? Like every policy and every time might get get a little bit different. It's because we're getting better. We're not seeking perfection. We're seeking progress. Um, so that way, every town is, is healing locally, and they're able to look and say, oh, that, that town did that. Okay, well, we can do this, but we can also do this a little bit more. And then the next town can look and say, wait a minute, they're doing that. Oh, my goodness, wait. Then this means that we can, let's add this in there, too. You know, so Boston has seven areas. Um, and Cambridge, we broke it down into 13 areas. You know, and so we're, we're pushing other towns, you know, expand the conversation, expand the areas that you're looking into. When we said health, we actually broke it down into three areas. We separated it by medicine, mental health, and public health. We wanted to really get in depth, you know, in the, in, in the health area and to address medical racism and all the ways that it's harmed us. Um, so I think it's very important to, um, you know, be intentional um, and to have conversations across the river like that, that we do. Um, talk with your indigenous people. Um, know that, who's, always remember whose land you're on. Um, and always remember that if you don't know all of the history, that's okay. There's, there's history that's not going to be documented by these colonial institutions. Um, and so you want to go back to your oral storytellers because they're going to have so much truth for you, um, in particular to the, the land that you're walking on um, that has been hidden from us. So this is, you know, very, very important to walk closely with our Native Americans. Saskia, uh, you mentioned learning across town, and that reminds me of solidarity. Um, so I'd love to get into the conversation about how the land back movement and the reparations movement exist in solidarity together. And if you can kind of talk about how those communities help each other, learn from one another, and work together. Can I just ask, I wanted to lift up to how our work locally connects to some of the national efforts around reparations. Um, but first of all, Saskia, just like underscore, like what you just talked about is reparations as this process, right? I think you laid out, like it's a process. There's not a, well, at some point, we hope it's done, right? Right now, it's not, like, that's not it. But it's a full process of repair. And the notion of 
local and be able to tell that local story. But we can't forget we've got to connect these efforts to a national effort, right? So the federal government sanctioned the transatlantic slave trade, right? The federal government levied the funds that can pay the invoice on reparations in a way that local governments will never be able to do, right? And that, that does not mean we don't do anything at the local level, but our city, our city council, what we raise from cannabis, et cetera, is nothing compared to what the federal government has in its coffers, right? And so we got to keep moving locally, but we've got to keep pushing on H.R. 40 and the passage of H.R. 40. Right now it is stuck. You know, it's supposed to be we're pushing for executive order by Biden. We still want that, um, you know, but we, you know, we look to other movements about what happens locally to push up to nationally, but we can't forget that connection, right, that we got to keep talking about the connection to what the federal government also needs to do in this conversation because um, we can't let them off the hook, right, cannot let them off the hook. And what I'll say, and I think you have a question about this later, but, you know, since the murder of Mr. Floyd in 2020, the reparations movement has gotten an injection of therapy, enthusiasm, <laughs> excitement, something, right? But around the country, there's over, there's probably 30, like, individual reparations efforts, even more going on. I mean, I can count, we can count five to six here in Massachusetts. But so there's lots for us to learn from, but to connect them all up to keep pushing, pushing on that federal level. Because there's, that needs to happen at that infrastructure. We talk about infrastructure changes, right? Federal government has a role to play here. So and and with that said, um, Tammy, Tammy, I, and some other organizers are working towards building an NCOBRA chapter here. And COBRA is the national network to push HR forward. So that's something that we're doing as well. And I've also been asked to help organize the Northeast region um, because every region, so I've been asked by Robin, well, there's, there's, a, there's a group of folks um, that put together the National Reparations Conference. And what we identified at that conference was that the regions need to be organized. So they have asked a few of us to help organize each region. So we're also, because I've been asked, we're also connected, you know, in a major way, um, the push for the Northeast region as well. Um, but to answer your question, I think that these two would be to us. <laughs> that one of the things that is really important, and I'm not an expert on land equipment. I am, I am, when I lift up, there are, it's a, it's a national movement, indigenous people, particularly on the reservation or off the reservation or in urban areas, deal with the federal government as, as a practice of life, as a practice of living. There's so many ways the federal government have a different relationship, different understanding of how federal government policies and policing dictate so much impact their lives. That's just a part of uh, indigenous living. Um, it's a theoretical and sometimes practice and direct nation to nation, right? And there are ways in which that doesn't work, right? MMIW, Murdered and Missing Women and People, is a way in which that doesn't work, right? The federal government does not hold accountable those who harm indigenous peoples on their lands when they're not indigenous. In fact, pointed out, they're still doing it, right? We're not alone, though, right? So those stats are very high for young black women and boys and black girls that have gone missing and not been found, right? So 
I, I just want to point out that, the, that when, we, so when I say the solidarity or the alignment, it looks different in our communities because of the ways that policies out are laid out, but they're, the practice is the same. The harm, the way that it turns out and the way that it impacts our communities, when we talk about policing, incarceration, right? If you were near a reservation, the highest incarceration rate is indigenous people, right? In urban context, it's black people. This is what happens, right? And now they're upping it to be femme buying people, right? Because they want to make money on it. So, you know, when I talk about what policy is, the doctrine of discovery is a law. It's a law. Laws can be overturned, right? As we saw recently. Um, you know, so, this is a law. This is one of the first laws. The fact that this project, the U.S. project, right? If you take and you say that you don't have the right to discover land that people are already on, what does land then become? Right? It, you take it and it's no longer wealth. It's no longer the thing that you build capital on. It's the thing that you live with. Right? The land back movement isn't just about, you know, we want land. Yes, we want a way to be able to live as whole people every day. You know, we want access to be able to forge, to be able to uh, get to our resources without having to fight, you know, um, whoever the said owner is because someone has decided that they're the owner and they did it in cahoots with religion, right? And so <laughs> Catholicism, but it's been upheld by so many after that, right? So it, I, it to me is like I don't even, like, yes, that's one piece, but it's also a law. So that means there's legislators, there's Congress that can overturn a law or rewrite a law, right? Um, just like in the play that came out, right, there was a moment where they had a decision and they, and they decided not to at the end of this said project to continue to have enslaved people, right? So there, there's always a choice. And it's who's capitalizing and who makes that choice and who's held accountable for that choice. And to me, part of that in, in land back is like, you know, locally, there are tribes locally where they have been in partnership in, in re-farming and in, in, in using farming practices in re-harvesting the land um, here in Massachusetts, right, and uh, access. But at the same time, you know, there's been an uptick since, you know, the pandemic, pre-pandemic, of people being harmed when they've gone to go fishing, of people going forging with their children and having, you know, the police come and attack them, um, and attack them in the sense of, like, being called on them, and they can, they're trying to get out of there, having spotlights on them, like, the harassment has been constant. Um, for living in a place where they legally have aboriginal rights to, right? And it's all along the coast, you know. So if you go northern Maine, and there's a, you know, all the, the lobster um, farmers, right? They were attacked on their boats physically, viscerally attacked. And because they still had, because of their Aboriginal rights, they had rights to harvest. And while the other other lobster folks were struggling, they were like, how can they can, how come they can go? And it's like, well, they're not harvesting for commercial use, they're harvesting for family use, for community use. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of harvesting. Um, and so this is, this is a lived experience that is a race, right? So unless you have somehow happened to know somebody who you follow on social media, or maybe that one blip you saw on the news, you're not going to hear the story. You're not going to hear the story 
locally in this region of what it means. And so to me, the Lambeth and, and, and the other piece like, to this quote, and I was like, oh, I want to organize I forgot to bring it with me. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote some of it, but the, the, the gist of the quote is, and this is so fundamental to most indigenous people. Again, we'll say for all because I won't ever speak as we're not a monolith. We're different peoples all over the place. You know, our beliefs are that we are who we are the land and the water that we're from. That we that we carry that. It's not separate. So when you ask what is land back, it's like I want to be whole. You know, I want to be able to be whole in the world, which means I need access to what makes me whole, right? And to be able to live there and to be free. And and not to be taking from somebody else, right? It's not about um, a commodity exchange, right? That's the thing that got us in the situation to begin with, right? Is that someone decided that they, that they didn't understand someone else's way of knowing, someone else's way of being, and because of that, they decided to implement many, many tactics. That took, there was a 200-year land struggle, fight, a physical fight that happened. My community of the Apache people were a part of that, the Plains people were a part of it, and locally here, the fight that happened to survive, to stay here, was real. And there are buried bodies, and there are all over underneath the, the Boston Common, um, you know, there, there are artifacts and places where people have been desecrated and not returned home. Um, the, there was just an article that came out in Harvard is holding 700 bodies. You know, let them go home. Let them go home. There's no, you don't need to hold those bones. You don't need to hold them. They need to go home, right? So, so to me, it's like this is all part of this movement, and it's also this recognition Right? And it started with Standing Rock, it started with Keystone, this recognition that we are in relationship with something. Right? We are in relationship, not just with each other as people, but with the land. And the acknowledgement that when you steward something and not own it, you become in relationship. Right? And so the movement around black farmers and urban farming is really powerful because it's another place where we are in relationship. And we know we're not going to go back. We're not removing all the people that live here and be like, oh, well, you got to go. I mean, I, I definitely know I have some folks who are like, oh, no, they can go. Um, you know? And, and that, but the reality is that's not real, right? We're here. This is where we are presently. So if we're here presently, what does it mean to then shift how we think about being here? And what does it mean to understand that if you can make a law to take away someone's wholeness, to break up what it means to be human, then you can make a law to put those things back in. I think one of the, when I when I think about the connection as well to not just land but also how the communities are formed, right? And so when you think about your indigenous, um, there's uh, sovereignty. Um, and I'm not thinking about uh, mass incarceration. Right? I'm not thinking about theft. I'm not thinking about how um, this is a society built upon extraction um, because that's not how our Native American communities are built. It's built off of extraction. Um, and so when we think about repairing the whole, 
Um, we're also talking about liberation, and within there is a conversation for abolition. Um, and it's really, really important that we acknowledge that um, because of the original slave catchers. So we can't have this conversation without acknowledging our police state um, and acknowledging the, the very real harm, the ongoing harm from our police state and the role that they're going to play um, in funding the reparations. Um, let me be very clear on that. I'm always very, very clear on that. The original slave catchers, your time is now, and you are to come forward into accountability um, and, and to stand and to come forward and to start asking us um, how can you assist in repairing the harm. It is not for you to name the solution. It is not for you to, to claim. You will not be advertising. You will not be fetishizing our black pain. That is not what's going to happen. You're not going to be developing programs and having your within the department. Um, you need to acknowledge that you are a trauma trigger, that your suit alone is a trauma trigger. You need to acknowledge what the original baton looked like um, and, and the hook on it to go around our necks. Um, all of these things are, are part of the conversation of repairing the whole. Um, and so it's, it's very important that we lock arms in solidarity with our abolitionists that are here and are doing the work and are screaming, you know, to, we have a governor that wants to invest $40 million in a new woman's prison, right? We're, we're screaming for investment into our communities. And what, what is this? What is this? So there's a direct, you know, uh, willingness to ignore um, constituents that are black and brown, that are saying no more prisons, right? And this call has been led forward by the National Council, um, and they're pushing us abolitionists in our state of Massachusetts. We have less than 500 women, um, 600 women in prison at any given day. It's around 500 and something. So it's completely possible for Massachusetts to be one of the first states to be completely free of women. Um, and we need to push for that when we're talking about repairing the whole. Um, because we as a society cannot be looking at colonial ways of accountability to transform our community. When harm is done, how are we going to have systems of accountability? This is conversations that we have to have, you know, very difficult, challenging conversations that we have to have and figure out what does accountability look like for us? Because this, this right here, it's not working. It's not working at all. And if anything, the violence is increasing. So we have to take a step back because this is not this is not our culture. We're we are not this is not our norm. This is not the core of who we are or our culture. Um, this is a culture that's been thrust upon us. And so we need to push back and say, No, this is not today, not tomorrow and, and, and cease. Um, and so there's a lot of solidarity in these movements, you know, and I think our Native Americans really set a great example of, um, you know, just that sovereignty and also, you know, in, in our black community we have transformative justice, um, but with our Native Americans, it was, they, they had transformative justice before transformative justice was a term that was coined. Um, so we have to always acknowledge, you know, the, the, the similarities. Um, and the the the, the mirroring journeys um, that were definitely taking place um, with one another. I mean, I think that I just want to be clear. There's an appropriation, right? There's an appropriation of culture, but again, it's an erasure, right? And we, and we mentioned this earlier. We do this to each other, right? We do this without 
without realizing we're doing it. And I want to hold this with tenderness because they don't, the intent is not harm, but the impact can be, right? When you take a practice, anyone's practice, right, and you don't recognize where it came from, right? There's been only one reconciliation project that was done in Maine with Native folks who experienced residential schools, which is like one of the most painful things. It's one of many, but it's a clear indication of genocide, right? And the fact that this has only ever happened at one commission with people who can't even speak about it, right, who lived it and can't speak about it, still can't speak about it, and that they use a traditional practice that has now been been like, oh, well, that works so well. You guys have modeled it in such a good way, and now it's going everywhere else. And it's like this came from deep pain people who still live today who cannot speak about this, to not acknowledge that this is actually from, a, it's not just circle work. It's not just, this is, oh, we're all, we're all in circles. Yeah, great, excellent, wonderful, that's great. I'm glad we all figured out what circle is. <laughs> great, I'm glad we know how to think. That, that's not, that is not the layers to which we're talking about. And the reality is, is that we, we grow off of each other, right? We grow from each other, but to not lean back and say, this is where it came from. This is where I got this knowledge from is a practice of erasure and genocide, is a practice of continuing that. We should be grateful to have that from each other, right? To be able to learn the different ways and practices of acknowledging not only our ancestors or spirituality, our practices, because they literally, going back to what I said earlier, it is the love that keeps us here. It is the love that brought us here, that will move us forward when it is too hard to move, when you don't want to get up, when you don't want to do anymore, when you're tired and you're too tired to move. It is that love, that love that we are cherished in that keeps us going forward. So it's not a, it's, they're not cool words. That's <laughs> cool ideas and cool things I learned how to do. I got a certificate from. I don't care. That's great. But if you don't acknowledge it, then we lose. We as a people, right? We become coupled to a systemic
backing this up is, um, I think they probably share this introduction, of the ART play, which is part of Harvard, um, 1776. Um, and I went and viewed it. And I went with my sister, who is a black woman from Boston. And we were the darkest people in the room. She's slightly darker than me. And there were like, I think four, we had a four, there was six of us total people of color. So we sat in the, in the, in the room and we're like, wow, look at that, that's an intermission. <laughs> like, ah, oh, look at that, it's actually worse than we thought. <laughs> this is amazing. But one of the things is that, you know, three things that we discussed. One, we both left so enraged, we're like, okay, why did we do this? <laughs> this is super painful. Institutions, in a way of, wanting to enlighten the world, right? Also have an ownership, and what does it mean? Who are you enlightening? Who is the audience, right? So when you put black paint on display, if that room had been so black around bodies, that could have been a moment of just restoring, something restoring and transforming, being seen and witnessed and witnessing each other. But when it's all four white bodies, then it feels exploited. When you say it's a radical imagination, but that imagination is that it's femme bodies and some of the binaries and non-binary, but they're all just femme bodies, but the story is the same. I'm like, where's the imagination? Inclusion is not radical. That's what we need to do. That's what is the baseline. So I'm like, Cool, I'm waiting for the radical. I was like, okay, okay, here we go. And I'm like, wait, they changed nothing. They just told me the freaking story. I already know this story. I already know what happened, you know? And so the next part was, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to talk about the rum trade and, like, how Boston is culpable. And I was like, okay, cool, that's good to highlight. You know, culpability is good. But what are you going to ask people to do with that information, you know? I'm like, if you have a moment as an organizer, I'm like, here's this moment. There's culpability. Well, I know a couple fights where they're asking for recognition and asking directly. So how are you in communication and community with folks who are doing the groundwork of repair in the city, in the region? Where was that conversation? Like, you know, I think, I think about the advisories now that I see all the time on shows where you're like, Oh, if you're if you're suicide prevention hotlines, then it's DP hotline. I'm like, how about the repair hotlines? <laughs> you know, there are people doing this work. Was it so important to perform and do this performance that it was out of community? The fact that institutions continue today and in 2022 still be fine with being like, hey, we're going to do this thing and not actually have any accountability with anybody or even be like, oh, we, we have no idea where they are. And I'm like, you know, it takes, it took me 10 minutes to find the tickets. It's going to take you 10 minutes to find people to ask questions. And you're an institution that has tons of money mm-hmm. and interns and students. You know what? They're really smart people. They can figure this out. There are people on the ground doing this work. And the fact that it's still happening and that there wasn't an intentional effort made to really bring the community and make sure that access was granted every night. Not just on a highlight night or because you're doing this thing or whatever. Like, every night. This story is for us. 
is our story. The fact that we aren't here to witness it and hear it and demand change in it is a problem. And to me, it's a reflection of, well, yeah, we had that moment when the phone was going, it was really tough, you know. Racial reckoning, people were really upset. Jeez. Like, we better do something. We better do something different. And I'm like, just, you know, this is in the 1950s. Like, where are we? What is going on that we can still act like it's okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just pass it because it just makes me so mad. I'm going to start saying bad words. So I'm going to just pass it on before I start saying bad words. I want you to know I was with you in those meetings about how images on the show were being displayed. And, and, and that there was a voice in that room fighting for that type of black harm not to be displayed in front of white audience. There were many voices that were fighting for that. And, um, and it was still decided. You saw what I'm saying. I mean, it, to me, it's like I know that it was still decided. In 2022, it's still decided that this is okay. But that's the and that's institutions. Yeah. But, not all, but not all. Like, I honestly think that Black college is a form of like healing. So not all institutions, but POCs, yes, um, all the way. Um, one like I'm I'm not speaking from experience, but just like visiting friends at POCs, like I never it didn't feel like it white schools. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just clarify, clarify your acronym. I know where you're going. <laughs> not POC, I'm saying it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, PWI. Yeah. I was like, I don't think I'm not POC either. Like, I, yeah. I think all of that is just muffles the fact that black folks want to be black. Um, <laughs> but PWI, yes, sorry. PWIs have, mm-hmm. like, if you just look at the campuses, you have like a little table for the black kids or a dorm for the black kids, but they don't ever feel included. Um, and that's the same for schools, you know, like grade schools, like those institutions too pay, play a lot of harm um, on our communities. Like the fact that Northeastern University could encringe on every on every piece of Roxbury possible um, is insane. And that's Harvard has the same implicit, you know, like, and don't pay taxes, right? You know, and not paying a tax. Um, so institutions, like, either need to start paying tax, and those taxes are restitution reparations. Um, I don't know if anybody has watched uh, ATL recently, and either... Um, episode four or five, that is the reality that I want to see where, you know, certain folks, certain institutions are paying restitution, but it's black folks. Um, so it's not just our government that is, you know, trying to figure whatever they want to do out, but like it comes from all different ways, all different ways in all different places. But also there needs to be, you know, maybe it's white institutions um, playing restitution to black colleges. Um, paying for scholarships, paying to um, make campuses better. I was watching a video on, um, it was Chelsea Handler's video about like being white or whatever. I'm sorry, I don't know the name. It's on Netflix. 
and there's an institution where it's like they have we have lobster Thursdays and steak, but at you know amazing black colleges, that's not what we get in our cafeterias because we can't afford that. But if there's restitution paid back to the institutions that are graduating, being both the best and the brightest, you know, in this world, then that that is. No. Okay. No, but I just, I, I just to echo this other piece in in because of the work I do organizing now and supporting that work. I I also want to lift up the best and brightest, right? Like I want to lift up the most educated people in this U.S. project are Black women. <laughs> the most educated, overqualified people in this U.S. project are Black women. Period. I don't know how many doctorates, double masters, <laughs> and they still won't get hired. <laughs> Our men are right still, in jail. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that it's not just about the institutions, right? So this is also part of reparations. They're still not getting hired. Yeah. They're still being denied access to a good job. And I'm just talking about seventy thousand a year. I'm not. I'm talking about baseline good job. Denied access because of who they are and how they show up and what has been determined their worth is. And so, you know, it's not, yes, but also that's a way in which restitution and reparations can happen, period. And echoing that in the indigenous communities, it's not any, it's not a difference. It's not a difference. And if it wasn't for our, our women getting the education and becoming lawyers and advocates, we wouldn't have the research and knowledge that we have to be like, hey, this is a problem, because no one else is doing it for us. No one else is doing it for us. We're bringing others in. So. Paper, would you like to speak to that? Yes, I would love to take you back on all of the excellent points that have been made, especially with regards to our institutions. So many of you may know that, for example, in 1908, there was a landmark report issue called the Abraham Flexner Report. And this report's purpose was to standardize um, uh, how doctors are, are trained across the country. And one, um, what, what I feel is an intentional byproduct of that report, it resulted in the closure of several medical schools, including um, all but two medical schools educating black doctors in this country. And then we wonder why we look up and it's so hard to find a black PCP or a black mental health care provider. Um, so I just wanted to lift that up. Um, and, you know, when we think about the racial and ethnic health disparities that, that um, black folks are facing, whether, you, uh, you know, again, to Sophia's point, you're looking at physical health, mental health. The reality is we don't have the workforce to meet that need. And this is not to say that, you know, only black patients can, um, can, can see black doctors, but there's data that supports this idea that in some areas you can, you can observe better outcomes when a black patient is cared for by a black physician. So um, these are all areas that um, require urgent, urgent repair and accountability. Mm -hmm. I just want to give some very, like, specific things. As a Cambridge resident, when I email you at Harvard, okay, and I ask for something, um, I don't want the response to be, we're not ready. 
I'm ready. Mm. I'm moving. You have way too much access to deny. It is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to tap into your network and find the support for grassroots organizers. Harvard, you know you've displaced black communities ongoing. You you were built through black excellence. I'm not talking about scholarships to Harvard. I'm talking about the fact that Massachusetts does not have not one HBCU. We have over 100 colleges in the state. Not one is dedicated towards HBCU. At this point, I want a freedom school. And I'm not talking about just K through 12. I'm going all the way. This is what is old, and this is just the beginning of the inkling of it. So when we call you, when I email you, and I say, I need this, do not respond back with links to other associations and saying, oh, if you contact this person, they might be able to assist. No. Contact your colleague. You do the introduction. Do the work. Be present. Be here with us because we're moving. Reparations is not an abstract uh, academia, you know, and you're going to enlighten. No, no, no. No, no, no. It starts with the people. It doesn't start with you. It starts with the people. So we've already been moving, and we've been organizing, and we are incredibly thankful for all of our elders and ancestors, for the breadcrumbs that you've left us, for us to go back and take them and form them together. But make no mistake, at Harvard, you're, the displacement, the, the economical violence that you have committed and continue to commit, there is no reason for me to have moved and I've done a campaign, I've done the work that I've done without any support from you. That is harm. And I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you in. I want to see a changed behavior and I want to change today. Cambridge residents are suffering. You have supports going into Austin and Brighton. And we look at Cambridge residents and we're saying, why don't we have access to their pools? Why don't we have access to the gyms? Why Boston, but you don't care about us, then we're right here. Why? Why? Why are we being so erased? Why is our harm not being named? And so you, you, you absolutely have work to do, and, and we need to figure out how is that harm, how is that healing going to look, because it is immediate and it is now. And some of that immediately looks like uh, wealth. You know you're sitting on it. You know, it takes nothing for you to raise a couple of thousand dollars. That would mean everything to grassroots organizers who are dealing with nothing, pennies. Make, moving mountains off of pennies is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, so you need, you absolutely do the work, build the connection. I don't know, but I'm not going to come to you with a no. I'm going to go back, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to come back. I will email, I will find the phone number, and we're going to figure this out. That should always be the answer, not that we're not ready. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking for solidarity. And so please, please move with us. Move with the people um, and not isolate yourself in your ivory towers and be present with us. And that's just not for Harvard, but that's for the hundreds of institutions around the state. Mm -hmm. You are to take your resources and you are to go into the grassroots organizers 
and you are to say to them, how can we support? And you do not leave until you have a list. And you ask for that list until they figured out what that list is. And you continuously go back, is there something else? That is your role in here, is to use the, the, the privilege, the access to the wealth that you have, all the students, the academia, all of that that you have. Every town should not be starting out doing a commission like we did in Cambridge. Our harm reports are not done. It, we move mountains to make this happen with no harm reports. That should not have been done, Harvard. Mm. <laughs> that should not have been done. You know, and so in other towns, you have these colleges that all exist, Quincy, Framingham State, all of you that are here, you should be moving mountains. Move those students. Move them now. With all the student unions, hold your professors accountable. Hold the institution accountable. They have the power. Move in solidarity. Find the residents. Because the residents see all of this being developed and they're frequently X'd out of the conversation. It is not a celebration of the institution. It is a celebration for the people that have been directly harmed. You know, so please, please start working um, in solidarity. Um, not for the press releases, not for the oh, big announcements, not for the panel conversations. I'm talking about the quiet work, the quiet work that, that's, that's like Mia had mentioned, when you don't want to get out of bed, when it's so hard and you don't want to move anymore. Be there. Be present there to encourage the people. We are here and we're going to be moving in solidarity and you are not alone. It's very important that you shift and shift now. Ooh. All right. Okay. So my little line that I was going to add on to that is Harvard doesn't need to raise thousands. They could just give it. Thank right? you. There's nothing. I'm a Harvard alum, right? And so when I think about the levels at which an institution can work, both at that personal, what is the experience of students on campus, I did not feel Harvard was mine, right? I'm an alum of 20 plus years. Harvard is still not mine. Does not feel like mine, right? And then there's also a reckoning that institution needs to do with their own history, right? Like that's the process that Harvard is in now, and that's why they're saying we're not ready to come out, right? Because we're not done. But they got to do all this at the same level. And then at the next level, recognize, and I speak of Harvard in particular, recognize the power they have to reverberate across the whole country and the world. That's right. And get political with them. Yes. Right. Get political with us. Own this issue. Let's not strive for neutrality on this. I think that's what you're calling. So this is not neutral. And this is the right side of history. We're telling you, this is the right side of history to be on. You don't want to miss this. And do not be neutral on this. Right. Get political. Bring your money. Right. Take out the endowment. You don't even. Oh, Lord, you don't know how much money it is. Well, yes, we all know, right? We all know what, that, what those resources could do. And not because you say, that is not my community or that's not my problem, right? To recognize the role that Harvard, all institutions of higher education were designed to replicate our systems of oppression, mm -hmm. right? That's, who, that's what they were designed for. Okay, we're trying to transform that together. Mm -hmm. So you've got to shift and move differently. But part of that is taking your wealth that you have accumulated and using it for something else. Mm -hmm. You have no right to sit on top of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just.
what you mentioned, shift and move differently. I'd love to throw Art in the mix. And Aviva talked at the top of the conversation. We have a visual artist, El Fago, who's creating a work inspired by tonight's conversation. And how can artists shift and move differently? I'm an artist working in music. Um, and to some degree, a lot of points that's made here tonight of the replication of the same old, same old is happening in art right now. And how can the art join this struggle for reparations, for justice? So I'm going to volunteer to go first because uh, this, this is my expertise. Is um, I grew up in the art world. Um, I am very clear and learned about the Afro-Cobra movement. Um, but the Afro-Cobra movement is just like a piece of a movement that has been replicated through time. Um, it's where, if, if, if you're not familiar, the Afro-Cobra movement was a, was, a, um, was a black arts movement um, that fueled the, like, you know, that time where Say Aloud and Black and I'm Proud, and that time that, like, there were black artists that were doing these huge murals that spoke to that movement. Um, so I, I'm super big. I believe the, the artists, like, anytime the artists are involved, in a movement, um, we have the ability to really, really shift some shit. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know if I can That's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do. Um, one, because there's no, there's no borders to the art world. Um, the, the, the amount of movement, the amount of ways we can um, touch individuals from, like, the, I always say the babies to the 80s, um, <laughs> is extremely, like, powerful. Um, I also got to really do some wonderful art interventions, like not just here but around the world, um, where, you know, like, I don't have to speak the same language as you, but even, even, even my parents, my mom, like my mom, the Bureau of Nicaragua, we don't speak any other language. Um, but art is a, lang is a language all of its own. Um, you get a feeling from those things. So the, the more the creative community community is involved in any movement, it makes it even more powerful. Um, because art for black folks is, you know, that's how we get through everything. Right? That's how we got get through everything. That's how we communicate. That's how we it's it's our heart. It 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 it's kept us alive. Um, and so we have to celebrate that piece and that that soul and that piece of the creative movement, but also like those who control the image control the mind. <laughs> so more that we control our own image, which is the creative piece in this movement, you see Juneteenth is everybody's now. And I think that's, I don't think certain people should get the day off for that. You know what I'm saying? Because now I'm like, White people. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, why? For what? Like, you've had a break all your life. Like, you run around and mock all the time. But, you know, black folks, like, we are not experiencing that, regardless of what, like, you could be wealthy and still feel all this harm deep in your heart. You know, like, you could have all the money in the world, you're still feeling it. Um, so art for us is, you know, the healing piece of this movement, um, but also the expansion of every movement. Art casts imagination, mm -hmm. right? And it gives us the future and the hope. It 
paint that future that we're trying, that we're working to live into and to create and gives us that hope that that is possible, right? We've been talking about the work that is hard, we don't want to get out of that, that is depressing, and we rely on our creative to cast, in whatever art form, right, a different, the future that we know that we are also worthy of, that you ache for, right? Like you feel it. It's like, I know this is not it. Like this is not it, right? And so we look to our artists, tell, tell me what I can hope for, what I can hold on to, cast that for me. Because if somebody else can imagine it, it can be real, mm-hmm. right? It can be real. So that's what we, I think that's what artists are from. I really don't want to cut this off. Oh, that's the thing. <laughs> Because I want to bring us back to 1776, <laughs> and commodify it and then feed it back to us and say, here, this is what radical looks like. I don't buy the bullshit. Stop it. Radical imagination is what saves us. It's what's driven by love, love for ourselves, love for our futures, love for our now and for our past. That is what radical imagination is. It's what's possible. And what's possible is anything. What's actual is how we get there. And we need both. And to step into that creative space to allow our creatives to live in that world so they can see what we can't see if you're in the grind, mm. right? That is the hope that we see in the future, that we see. I just want to Wait, okay. We go around and we can keep it brief because we over time. And if we can share with audiences who are watching um, not to promote that being involved in this work isn't a lot of work, and I can do it real quick. But how can folks join this struggle? How can folks participate? Um, so, like, with the Boston work for on the groundwork, if folks are really interested in joining in COBRA, like being an inaugural member for the Boston and COBRA chapter, or, like, for black folks. So, yes. Um, you can email bostonreparations at gmail.com. But also um, King Boston, Mass Black Coalition, and New Democracy Coalition will be hosting a community convening that, you know, features artists um, to help, you know, guide through the space, but also the harm report and different ways for us to be involved. That, that will be out on King Boston's website and social media as soon as we finalize those dates. Um, that's another way, but also on the Cambridge side. So for MRCC, Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council, you can go, we have a form that you can go to. It's bit.ly slash MA Reparations Toolkit. Uh, MA, yeah, Reparations Toolkit. And you can go to that, and it will go to a form, and it's an intake form. So if you're actually, say you're not in Boston, you're not in Cambridge, you're someplace else right now, and you're, you're listening, um, but you're in the state of Massachusetts. Um, you can fill out this form. You do not have to be of African-American descent. You can be white. 
Um, and I will go through the intake forms and I see who responds and the way that you can assist, that's part of the intake form and the way that you can assist and what ways you feel like you can contribute. Um, and you're matched and there's going to be lead grassroots organizers in every town um, just to help build that education from a policy standpoint and how to stand in solidarity. So we just want to give practical tools out there um, and support systems. Um, so, you know, just very grassroots, people-powered. So if you want to know something, you know, you can do that. The easy, you know, bit.ly slash MA reparations toolkit. You can go there and fill out the form um, and somebody, one of us will get back to you um, and, let, and let you know, like, this is what's occurring in your town already and this is who you should probably connect with. And if there isn't anybody, then this is where you start. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the beginning of where you're going to have to start. But also don't feel like you need us to do any yes yes. Um, yes if you have the passion like put it out through your social media go and talk to your neighbors like if you already have the knowledge like like we're just holding space um but anybody can create their own space this is for all of us the more the merrier yeah. um like just like you don't feel like you have to you know be with an organization or individual or a movement um it yeah. doesn't it takes all yeah, get, get, get educated, know your history, and talk about that history. And then a shameless plug, the organization I work for is called Action for Equity. We work on racial equity through the lens of jobs, transit, environmental justice, and housing. Um, you can go to info at actionforequity and email them at .org. Um, currently, we're building tables around the cliff effects about jobs access and good jobs. So I've, I've talked about it a lot. But we're act we're actively working on, and we just ran a blitz and talked to over 12,000 people, um, and engaging them around tables around the cliff effect, which is when you are getting public assistance and you can't get a better job because you will lose your housing or you'll lose your childcare or you'll lose some other place, and there's not a coverage right now, right? What does that mean? What's that impact? If you're interested in um, understanding how Corys work. What is Corey reform? Where is that at? What are good jobs for folks who are on reentry? What does that actually mean to them coming from them and designing that for themselves? What does it mean? What is DEI, right? What is diversity and inclusion? What is it actually? And what are the best practices of companies that are hiring for good jobs starting at 70,000? We have 40,000 jobs coming into the Boston area alone from the biotech industry. Those jobs are coming whether or not our community has access or knowledge of them. It is our job, and particularly as our, as our networks, we see it as our job to make sure our communities at least know about it, if not have access, and if not pushing through to make sure people are in those jobs and have the training and transferable skills to keep those jobs. And we don't hear back in three months that they didn't meet whatever standard. And we know that those things are happening. Um, and so if you like direct action, this is what we're directly doing. We're doing it right now. Can people find the harm report anywhere? Yes. So I'll just like to add from a, from a research perspective, um, the executive summary is being released publicly as we speak for this harm report. But the final report is going to be released around the fall of this year, and it's really going to um, you know cover these seven injury areas um, in as comprehensive a way as possible without getting sort of too too deep into the details. Um, so that's on the way. Um, and other ways that I'm thinking of that, that folks can get involved is um, sign up for King Boston's mailing list. And I say this because at, at some point um, I'm going to be looking for to the extent that, you know, folks are comfortable for communities to share their 
for individuals to, to really share their stories because when we think about data, we think it's usually, you know, numbers and, you know, the quantitative and things like that, but our lived experiences are data. And I don't mean that in an extractive way. Like, you know, we're so used to academia coming into our, coming into our communities and doing surveys and asking all sorts of invasive things and, 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 and extracting our stories and then they take them and then we don't know what happened with that, what they did with that. So that's not what I'm talking about when I, when, when, when I ask folks to the extent that they're comfortable to, to share their stories. But at some point, um, we'll be reaching out to the community, to folks, black folks, to, to, to start sharing some of their experiences so that, um, you know, we can, we can lift these up as we really try to push this effort through here um, locally and at the state level as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for your range, your joy, mm -hmm. your honesty, your love. Um, I'd love to transition now to Q&A, either from our very intimate, small, in-person audience or from our virtual audience, um, to me and virtually, who have questions. Julia texted me the question. <laughs> <laughs> any personal questions? Any, oh, any in-person? First, really blessed by everything that all of you said. It's really great to find community in this conversation where, you know, they're not always had out loud in spaces of institutions, stuff like that. We talk a lot about black joy, and it was something that I was yearning for, especially in 2020. But every time we talk about black joy, sometimes I feel like we aren't always talking about where we find it, where we go, um, you know, who we're reading, who we're talking to, who we're crying with, who we're crying at. You know, so if any of you could give examples of where you go to get joy and who you go to where you go to. Black joy. Um, I love it. Lately for me, is trying to figure out me um, and appreciating and loving me. Um, there are lots. And you know what? This space gives me black joy. Um, it does, the Fairmont Innovation Lab, like all of the black creatives in this space, like even like the space, you know, Justin who runs the space, he's a black man, like, and it's an ecosystem of black artists. So I, it, there's kids that are in here, there's families, like it, this, this space brings me lots of black children. Um, and there's constant events, different kinds of events, and the family. Um, at, at, right here, being with all the black women, really, that's who I'm leaning into these days. Um, I feel that's where I'm my most authentic, where I can be my full self, where I can just be. Um, and so, like, this is, like, really filling that cup right now. Um, for me, black joy is frequently in spaces where capitalism is not centered. Um, if I have to pay for access, um, I already know that this is not a space centered on liberation. Um, and therefore, there's going to be some sort of compromise of self entering here. Um, and so gatekeeping, right? Um, so for me, a lot of black joy is um, removing that part of the conversation. So um, like as you know, I've been talking with people like, where's the block parties? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a major event called a block party. 
I'm talking about on the street. Um, because our children don't know each other. Um, and there's, there's very real harm happening right now where my childhood is not the same as the children's childhood today. Um, and so we need to, uh, we're doing all these marchings and all these protests and we're saying whose block? My block. Um, and then whose streets? My streets. And then we're on the streets and we don't even know our neighbors. Um, so we need to start the healing work um, and Black Joy is part of that, right? Like, let's, let's get, let's just do a traditional block party. Let's knock on our neighbor's door. Let's agree to a date and let's just come out and bring out the barbecue. Um, this is important, you know, just as crucial as part of the policy and the research and all of that, um, knowing who's in your neighborhood. Um, we are living in a crisis society right now. We have to focus on healing. Um, we have to take back things that have been ripped away from us, you know, especially with the war on drugs, um, the hyper-violence, the police state, the hyper-vigilant police state that we're living in now. I go to other cities, uh, Philly, New York, they don't ask for permission to shut down the streets. Um, I don't want to see that. Black people, stand with pride. It is your street. You do not need permission. You do not need a form. You can put cars on the end and you can have joy. You have that divine right to for the children to come out. And it's not something for them to just watch on TV. Once upon a time, our city was like this, that the children could go out and play and, you know, uh, the fire hydrant could be broken and they would play. And, and yeah, exactly. And, and the, you know, no cops, like they, they could play. And it wasn't this, this big thing. But now, if this was to happen, it's, oh my goodness. No, you did not get the form. Oh, no, you're going to have to shut this down. And it's just like, wait a minute. How did we accelerate to this point? Um, and let's just take a step back because um, asking for joy is not like, no, we're not asking for joy. We're going to be joyful. Um, and you're going to respect this boundary. Um, so there's a conversation, you know, that we still have to have within our community. But joy is the act of resistance. And find it in all ways. Um, for my artists, you know, um, the art is not always going to be celebrated in the museums. In fact, the museums need to be giving everything back, right? So uh, I, 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 when I went with my cousin, I saw uh, we wanted a revolution. And uh, I saw the regurgitation of type of artwork and the subject matter was still happening today. And that actually very much contributed to like the work that I'm doing now because I want to inspire my artists to give you more subject matter to, to draw, to paint, to dance, to, to perform with. Um, and so with my artists, also thinking about the landscape. Think about where your art is to be placed. Is it going to be in the forest? Um, is it, is it not no longer on the walls of these white institutions? Where is our art? Um, I want to see it. I want to come. I want to celebrate. I want to be there. This is part of Black Joy as well, too. Um, you know, the gatekeeping, the removal of the gatekeeping um, through capitalism is part of that. So um, please be, be radical and be joyful um, because I want to celebrate with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> No, no pressure. No, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer that question. It was a great question. Um, for me personally, I, I 
started to pick up the electric guitar again. Um, I'm really into rock music, and um, rock music is where we're seeing a ton of black erasure. Like, a lot of people don't know about Sister Rosetta Stark, who in the early 1900s was strumming away on an electric guitar, doing gospel and filling stadiums. Um, so, you know, that's what brings me joy. If I were to kind of go back and do my life over again, I'd probably um, be guitar and then, like, um, we have two online questions, well we have three, but you answered one in previous discussions. Um, how do you take care of yourself and avoid burnout in this work? Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's about a practice of wellness, right? Yeah. And and as you said, this is a space of wellness, right? For me as a guest of space and a participant at the same time, um, being again and also away from my home community, right? There what's not me is me. And uh, a way that I saw that we we are shared, we had just done a blitz and we were out and most of the folks who were on the blitz were residents, and most of them were black folks. And I was at one point when we were knock, door knocking, and uh, one, of the, one of my group had like six people with me, and they were just being like loud and laughing and whatever. And I just, there was a moment where, and there's a one person who, the black man who was like, oh, that is so loud. I was like, and they like sat down on this stoop, and it was a bit of house with them being. And, you know, they were taking a break, and I was like, this is great. It reminds me of home. Mm -hmm. I feel at home, right? I feel like we can be whole. And I'm like, there's no harm in laughs. There's no harm in walking in the street. No one knows. We're not bothering anyone, right? Like, we're literally in our own neighborhood, making our own noise, but we're not bothering anyone. And so who are we embarrassed by, right? And so the question of, like, that to me is holding those moments of wellness. Mm -hmm. Another place is like experiencing the knowledge and stories of each other, right? That just something about that just resonates with my soul to be like, oh, you remember that. You, re you have that memory, right? And that thing that I connect to that just is so unique to you and that you shared it with me. You gave me this gift and, and I get to give you mine. It just feels so, it, it's so precious. Right, like we don't we don't get to do that often, and so for me that is I hold those memories when it seems too hard. But it seems like it's not going to win. <laughs> We're not winning. This is not a win, and I'll remember those things, and I'll remember that that's the win. Right, each of those goes to the win. I think we also have to remember we are so in this together. Right, so push back against capitalistic notions that tell us it's about the individual, right? Your individual mm -hmm. self can practice wellness, absolutely, absolutely. But I'm not doing anything by myself, mm -hmm. right? There's no win by myself. There's no struggle by myself, therefore, mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes I got to step back as either going to go forward. Sometimes we're right here. Sometimes she's got to carry me and I got to carry her. Right, because that's we're in this together, and needing to remember that that is an act of resistance as well. Right, out there tells us it's about the individual and what you gotta 
pull up and then what you have to get accolades for. That's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. Right? That's not so the burnout, yeah, we gotta call each other gently to, okay, it's time for you to, you can, you can sit down. It's okay. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. okay. Yeah. All right? Oh, now you can step back up. That's okay, too. Right? We're going to be balanced with each other. But we're in this, we're in this together. And that's, that's what we're trying to fight for. Step back away from individualism and step into interdependence. That's right. Mm. Like, absolutely, I have people around me that hold me accountable. Saskia, you need to step back. Like, this is a great idea, love, but you already have all of this on your plate. How is that going to work out? Um, and being like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I don't know how many hours that's going to take, but my hours are already here. Um, you know, having meetings and, and then at the end of my meetings, people ask, did you eat? Okay, go eat dinner now. Did you drink any water today? Go do that. Um, and so there's constant accountability of self-care um, towards me and then me towards everybody else as well, too. So uh, seek those who are reciprocal. This is not something that is me, 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 and it's not something that's based on extraction. Um, it is very much about building interdependence. Um, I want to see you thrive. You want to see me thrive. I want to see us thrive. I want to see us all you know, grow together. We want to see us thrive. Um, and so I think that you really need to, to start, start there um, to avoid the burnout. I've experienced the burnout. I've had the nervous breakdown. I was not in a place of interdependence, um, and I had to shift. And when I shifted, things changed. Um, and I, I have very real healing that's occurring right now with me um, because I've done that work. Um, so I just encourage, you know, interdependence and community. We have but one more question. Wait. I don't want anybody to feel like, because for me, I need to escape from other people's energy sometimes. So, like, that also is an act of self-care mm -hmm. um, because others' energy can deplete you. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have what you need, like if you're if you're coming with an empty cup, then it will be hard for you unless you, you're filling yourself. So that it's it's two it's twofold, but being able to balance between the two is extremely important. Like I'm an only child, so I, it's like trying to like figure out like where my place is in amongst the whole sometimes is you know is is not easy um and then there's times where i'm like okay i'm done with people <laughs> even though like that you know like and that has to be you know respected too because we're you know we're not all used to you know that until we can get into that space that's important. That's not important. We we're not the same. We're not a mother. Right? Yeah. Right. We're not. We're not the same. And burnout doesn't look the same when everybody. Someone can be overproducing and be completely burned out. Mm -hmm. Right. Someone can be underproducing because they're burned. Burnout looks different in everybody, and it's and that's why I was saying for me, it's those moments of remembering those sparks. Right. It's like that because I'm. I, as you all know. I like to hang out with myself a lot, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very public, so people who know me in the public are, would never know that about me, because they're just like, oh, but you're so, and I'm like, nah. <laughs> That's because I spend a lot of time by myself. <laughs> Thank you all for your knowledge, your experiences, and the beautiful questions.
Before we close out, we'd love for El Saga to spotlight their screen, to share the artwork that was create, created, and to share the art that was created. <laughs> so there was a series of paintings that we did during the session. Um, the first is up top, and that one is called Struggle for Black Reparations. Battle Under the American Sky. Um, the B and the R stand for Black Reparation, and um, it represents crisis in society and the police state of hyperviolence. And the um, the red, the white, and the blue not only represents the American sky, but also the blood white supremacy and blue horizon. Um, did you want to add anything to that one? Okay. And then the second one, push it a little bit closer, um, is looking forward to blue skies. There's a little black boy and a little black girl named the new Adam and the new Eve, and they get to enjoy the land. So the sky is really big and the land exists, and it's new, it's brand new. Um, and then inside, very subtly inside of the sky, you can see invisible remnants um, that still exist from the blood, the sweat, and the tears that have been laid to create the foundation for them to create something new. You can't hear this, but people are clapping in the studio. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I can um, gather any questions if people have them and share them with El Plaga. Um, I want to thank you both so much. And I want to thank our incredible panelists, Saskia, Tammy, Aziza, Mia, April. And thank you so much, Steph. Um, and thank you, Ola. Oh, almost giving us some lighting right now. Um, thank you all so much for joining. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, we have recorded this, and we will be following up very soon with documents that were mentioned so that you can uh, stay connected to all of the incredible work from the people featured here today. Thank you so, so, so much. We are closing out right at 8 o'clock. Um, last plug, like we mentioned at the top, is our final event of the program celebrating our future that will happen this Saturday on Spectacle Island, featuring live performance, music, ritual. Um, it's all free and open to all, so we'll send you the link so you can come and celebrate all the incredible work that we've done throughout this program. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening. Good night.
Black Power says. Black Power, what's the word? Yes, ma'am. How you doing, Sister Antoinette? You're not feeling good. I'm not feeling good either. Don't well, I can't, I can't get my voice. I don't know what. I, I haven't been this thing in a while. I thought you smelled the yellow stuff coming out of me. Oh. Yeah, I don't want to smell it. Yeah, well, we feel better. I got. I hope you feel better too. Yeah, I got blood coming out of my hoo-ha. <laughs> I'm on my cycle. Uh, <laughs> I'm on I'm on my I'm on my cycle. But uh but uh child, you can't go nowhere, just take your little rest. We're not letting you go nowhere. What well, I am going. You you going to sleep? <laughs> now, I don't know what the, I don't know what message you gave me, but uh you can't, you can't leave us. No. Nope. I ain't no, I ain't no help you Yes, you are. You can cut it out. Right. Where all this come from? Why you start doing that? Oh, yeah, is that because we did that call the other day? You was, it was late. You know, you be going to sleep early. We was. No, well, we know that. Well, we know from now on. I just figured it was late because it was eleven thirty when we had first got on the phone. So I didn't, want, you know. I know you be falling asleep. I think, I think maybe I'll be coming down with this. I'm gonna get you yeah, but you can't be uh, trying to uh, quit. We ain't gonna let you anyway. Right. Uh, I'm just gonna. I'm about to delete that message right now. Hold on. I'm about to delete. It. <laughs> I am. What? Delete it. <laughs> I'm like, that was five thirty. I said, what is this? Who is this? Uh uh-uh. uh. Nope. Nope. <laughs> well, you know, everybody, everybody been having a moment. Cause I even said yesterday, I said I was gonna be off today. We be needing our little break. But you can't quit. It's nothing wrong with taking a a pause for the call. No, but no. Just the other day, uh, what's gonna call it, Luca? What happened was, you know, they didn't send that email. Luca didn't send an email out to everybody. So Fatima saw we didn't see it, so they they blocked us from seeing the email that Luca put out. So, so the the email he put out talking shit about the convention. So she, so so uh, the Ghost Rider had already uh sent a long-ass six-page document, so we just went in and chopped it all down to make it make sense. And Fatima don't, don't even know it came from the ghost right mm-hmm. 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 She's trying to play both sides. He's saying the same language that Rashid never said, what uh, Lucada was saying. Trying to tell me we got to go to the PC. Fuck the PCC. Right. Yeah, go back, go back and, uh, like a 
Now that's fine as he is. It's all the way fucked up. Because they they shiesty, they shady. And Yanga been checking them all day too. They trying to act like the uh they ain't uh whatever they're trying to do with the paperwork. Publisher event. I'm trying to change I but I tried to go on the bit right and change the flyer to the new flyer. Yeah. But I ain't figured out how to do it yet. I keep messing. Yeah, I think I'm gonna just try tomorrow because, like I said, I've been having a headache, so I'm like I'm not all the way 